All right, today we are in John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, and um, this book is an interesting book. It's not unusual in the Bible, but there's something about 1 John and a few of the other books that, that kind of strike you if you just read it straight through. It definitely strikes our teaching team in a different way. In fact, uh, some on our teaching team said this about 1 John, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. And it's true, if you read 1 John, it's here, it's there, there's four verses about this topic and eight verses about this topic, it darts all over. James is the same way. It really seemingly has almost no flow to it. Now, the problem that we have with that is that we're Westerners, and Westerners don't read like that. We don't communicate like that. We don't give a presentation like that. We don't write like that. And so we are Westerners reading and studying an Eastern book. So just a quick little primer on how to read your Bible we have to look at the context in which it was written. Western thought, our way of thinking is linear. Eastern thought, like the book of 1 John, is circular. Not good, not bad, just different. Western thought builds upon ideas. Eastern thought repeats ideas. Western thought builds to a conclusion. Eastern thought builds intensity. To put this in a, in a graphic way, here's, here's how Westerners think. We set up arguments linearly towards a conclusion. This is Western thought. We're very comfortable with this. Much of the New Testament is written in a Western way. Every uh, letter from the Apostle Paul is written like this. Romans, one of the most beautiful examples. Luke um, was a, a Greek. And so the Gospel of Luke, very linear and chronological. Uh, same thing with the book of Acts. So about half of the New Testament is, is Western. About half the New Testament is Eastern. John is Eastern. Eastern thinking is like this. It's beautiful. And it starts in the middle with certain thoughts. And then it goes here and goes there and goes here. And then it repeats all those thoughts in a little more intense way. Then it repeats them again in a little more intense way. That's more Eastern thought. There's no greater example of that kind of writing than the book of Revelation, also written by John. The book of Revelation, it starts with this kind of cute little, you know, letters to the churches. By the end, it's lake of fire, streets of gold. I mean, it just keeps winding these things. No Westerner has ever had a correct thought about the book of Revelation. I mean, every book of Revelation went written by Westerners, wrong, 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 every single one. Um, and, and so you've got to approach certain books in context. John, 1 John is, a, is an Eastern context. 1 John is a repeating spiral, increasing the power of biblical truths. So it repeats subjects over and over and over again with increasing intensity. So here's the way we're going to approach 1 John. If, if we handled every verse every week would be the same sermon because it repeats the themes over and over. So instead of what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a main theme out of chapter one, a different theme out of chapter two, a different theme out of, a theme out of chapter three, four, and five. We're gonna hit every single theme in 1 John that repeats, but we're not gonna hit it every time it repeats. Make sense? All right, cool. And the reason why I say that is because inevitably there's somebody who's gonna write me some email saying, why did you skip verse three? You must have some agenda. You must be carving out the word of God. You must be a pagan. It's like, well, well yes, yes, and yes, but... This is how we're going to do it. Now, uh, one of the repeating themes in the book of 1 John is, is there is a villain. There is a gnarly villain in there. And, and this villain is ripping apart the church and, and leading people away from Christ. This villain is a, sheep, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? He's a bad dude or a group of bad dudes. Now, John doesn't tell us exactly what they're doing. He just says they're dangerous. So we have to kind of put some pieces of the puzzle together. We have to look at, at first century history, uh, late first century church history, kind of where the thinking was going, how some heresies were rising up. And so it's assumed that these pre-Gnostic mystics who were saying that Jesus wasn't 
a real human. He wasn't really living in a body. And here's some mystical knowledge. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead you away to some mystical secret knowledge where you can ha have enlightenment. Uh, that's, that's probably who these villains were. Now, there's always a fun villain that we can look to and to say, okay, that's the enemy. So how do we protect ourselves from the enemy? And how can we avoid being allured by this enemy? We love, we love enemies. We love villains. Uh, in your mind, who is the top villain in modern cinema? Top villain in modern, modern cin cinema? Darth Vader. Darth Vader. Yeah, okay. Joker. Ooh, yeah. Number one. This is, a, this is the definitive list. Number one villain? Absolutely. Heath Ledger's Joker. Number two villain? Darth Vader. This is based on science. This is just science. <laughs> Number three, Hannibal Lecter. Oh boy, those, those eyes. Uh, if you have small children, cover their eyes for a, a minute here. Uh, Freddy Krueger came in at number four. Oh, no, don't, no. <laughs> number five, Lord Voldemort. I didn't know who this was. I've never read the Harry Potter books. I've never seen the movies. And I, I just get people, I mean, seriously, casting stones at me all morning. You have to be a really old person to remember this guy here. Uh, there he is. Jack Torrance from The Shining. Uh, Magneto from The X-Men. We probably all know that. Terminator, a little dated, but Terminator came in at number eight. My personal favorite, it should be number one. In fact, the Lord says it should be number one. Agent Smith from The Matrix. Mr. Anderson. And then uh, Palpatine from Star Wars. Boo, don't like the late Star Wars, and off we go. Okay, so those are the top ten. Those are the top 10 villains uh, in modern cinema based on, on multiple surveys by people who have way too much time on their hands. Who's, who are the villains of the Bible, particularly the New Testament? Who are the villains in the New Testament? There's two of them in particular. There are the legalists and there are the mystics. The legalists and the mystics. The legalists we talk about a lot because the legalists are the ones that were pursuing Christ to the point of conspiring to put him to death. The legalists are the ones that were pursuing the Apostle Paul. So Jesus and the Apostle Paul, and by the way, that's way more than two-thirds of the New Testament, addresses and deals with the legalists. The legalists are the ones who are not into God's grace. They are the ones you have to obey the law, obey the commandments, you know, be circumcised, eat all the uh, kosher diets, all that kind of stuff, right? They're the legalists. Then there, are the, then there are the mystics. The mystics are the ones who are the super spiritual ones. Um, they're the ones who have this high spiritual knowledge and speak in high spiritual language, right? So to kind of put an illustration around this, legalists are like the crocodiles. Crocodiles are mean, mean, mean. Crocodiles kill more people than sharks. Uh, the bite of a crocodile is 3,200 pounds per square inch, and they are ferocious. They attack to kill every single time. Sharks, they'll bite your arm, realize you're not a seal, and let you go, usually. Uh, and you just thank them uh, as they do that. Crocodiles never let go. 3,200 pounds of pressure, and they're digging in, and they're not letting go. They'll drag you into the water. That's how it goes. So if you get bit by a crocodile, just say your prayers. It's over. Uh, we eat steak at 200 pounds per square inch, just to give you. I had steak last night. Yummy. My boy's uh, birthday party, 200 pounds per square inch. Crocodile, 3,200. The only creature on earth to have a similar bite to a crocodile is the Tyrannosaurus rex. Seriously. These are bad suckers. This is like the legalist. Legalists, they're just mean and ugly. Uh, every church has legalists. They're mean, they're ugly, they're nasty. You just know who they are, right? They're walking around with a scowl on their face. They're already judging this, judging that, judging the sermon, judging that person. You're not holy enough. You don't believe this. You don't, I mean, that's just the legalist. Mean, nasty creatures. They're kind of obvious, right? They're kind of obvious. The, the mystic is like this, this puffer fish. Isn't that adorable? You just want to squeeze that fish and cuddle. But if you squeeze and cuddle that fish, 
you're dead. You're dead. Their toxin is in their skin, in their muscles, in their livers, in their kidneys, in their gonads, just true. It's everywhere. And if you, if you ingest at all or touch their toxin, you're dead. You've got to get to a hospital quick. If you don't, everything will shut down in paralysis. Their toxin is 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide, right? But they're so cute and cuddly, right? That's the mystic. That's the mystic. They speak in high spiritual language. God told me this, and God is leading me here, and God told me to tell you this, and I have this secret spiritual knowledge. You follow me, and I'll tell you what the real deal is. And, and they're, they, they're spiritual. And, and as, they, as they rise up in church, people follow them. Because in church life, boy, he speaks so well, so eloquently, so spiritual. Look how much time he says he spends in the Word and in prayer and, and all these supernatural experiences he says he has, right? And, and they're so attractive this is the enemy of 1 John, mystics, mystics. Now, mystics still exist today, right? You gotta be careful. They are fake healers. They are fake prophets. They always say, God told me this, God told me that. They'll make false promises. Hey, you give more money to my cause, more money will come back to you. You follow me, pray the way I tell you to pray and follow my little system here and you will be healthy and happy and prosperous. Be careful. These were the enemies, the villains of 1 John. And so there's a question that's, that's asked in 1 John 2. Who are these enemies and how can we know that they exist? And John makes it very clear for all of us. We know the villain by whether or not they love. We know the villain by whether or not they love. It is that simple. Here's what it says, 1 John 2, 9 and 10. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Very simple, plain language. If you love, good indication you're in Christ, walking in Christ. If you don't love, good indication you're not in Christ, not walking in Christ. It's almost like love is, is a diagnostic tool. You know what a diagnostic tool is? Uh, doctors have diagnostic equipment. Uh, your mechanic has diagnostic equipment. Now, your mechanic cheats, and I only say that because I'm jealous that they can fix cars. I, I can't fix a car that's newer than 1979. But you go to a mechanic and say, hey, something's wrong with my car. It sounds like, rah, 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 bah, 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 bah. And they, what they do is they take it in and they hook up a machine and they plug it into the uh, a port right underneath your steering wheel and the computer tells them exactly what's wrong. So they call you up like two hours later. It took them 30 seconds to plug in the machine. Two hours later, yeah, we discovered all kinds of problems with your car. The diphthong and the doodad does this. And oh, wow, well, you must have done a lot of work. No, I plugged a gizmo into your car. So that's a diagnostic piece of equipment, right? Then, of course, they skillfully and artfully fix it perfectly, never to be returned again. So that's diagnostic equipment. Another uh, diagnostic piece of equipment is this, this thermometer here. Very handy, right? You just, uh, let's see, one, one beep, two beep, and 97.0. <laughs> that's a little cold. It's a little cold. Um, but it tells me whether I'm alive or dead. I was actually nervous. If it was room temperature, I'd be dead, but it shows human temperature, living temperature, so that's good. It's the diagnostic tool. Are you alive or dead? So love is a diagnostic tool for our walk with God. If we love, the diagnosis is you're walking in the light of Christ. If you don't love, the diagnostic is you don't walk with Christ. You're not walking in the light of Christ. You know, I'm not saying saved or unsaved. I'm just saying if we want to walk with Christ... If we want to walk with him, let's live a life of love. That's the diagnosis. To put it this way, if people love like Jesus, it's a good indicator they're walking in the light of Christ and can be trusted. If people are not loving, that's a good indicator that they are not walking in the light of Christ and should not be trusted. 
So John says, listen, there's people among you that are trying to lead you away with all this mystical garbage, right? They're pufferfish. He didn't say that, but they're like pufferfish. They seem sweet and kind and all that, but they're leading you away. Be careful. And you'll know who they are by whether or not they love. To be clear, loving people does not earn anything from God. You know the mantra here at Rancho. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's a gift, a free gift. We just receive it, right? So loving people does not earn anything from God, but it's a good sign that you're walking with him. You're walking with him close. As John says, walking in the light, living in the light. So a, a question comes up as you're reading 1 John. Uh, the, there's a question that arises, well, should I love everything? That was certainly a question that was implied in chapter two. Should we love everything? And the answer is a resounding no. We should not love everything. Even though love is the marker, the diagnosis of walking in Christ, we shouldn't love everything. In fact, here's the conclusion of 1 John chapter 2. We should love everybody, but not everything. We should love everybody, but not everything. And then he gives a list of four things we should not love. Ready? Now, I'm using uh, the translation from the message. Uh, a lot of the translations of 1 John are, are really wonky, and, and the message just presents the biblical truth so cleanly and clearly. I, I love it. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's things. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Very, very clear language. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants lives in Christ forever. Some cool stuff there. The diagnostic of whether you walk in Christ is love. But let's not love everything because there are some things that if we love, if there's some things that we love, there are some people we won't love. And that's the theme here. So what are the things we should not love? Well, we should not love, as John says, the way of the world. What is the way of the world? Well, the way of the world is pretty simple. The way of the world is life is about you. That's the way of the world, that life is about you. It's really a philosophy that says what matters in life is us. What matters in life is our well-being. What matters in life is that we get our way. What matters in life is that we get what we want. And the sale of that is everywhere in the world. East, west, west, north, south. It's everywhere in the world. Every advertisement and every, you know, magazine, newspaper, digital marketing, influencer, they're peddling, 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 right? And it's peddling so that we would have something that we want. And we may not even know we want it. So what they're going to do first is they're going to say, you really want this, don't you? Well, I never thought about it my entire life. But now that you mention it, I do want that thing, right? And here's how it's going to benefit your life. And, and so we grab after these things. I deserve it, right? I deserve that thing. I deserve that experience. I deserve that fun. I deserve that luxury. I deserve that pampering. I deserve it. And they're dangled out there. And then we in the West, in such a prosperous country, we have the means to get that stuff. And so we go for it, go for it. Let me put it to you this way. Here's the allure, that there is nothing more precious than what this world can give you, what this world can give me. Nothing more precious than what this world can give us. It's money, it's pleasures, it's fame. Now, as we look at 1 John chapter 2, we see that when John says the love of the world, John lists out a bunch of things that love us. And so the love of the world is really a love of self. Love of the world is a love of self. And then he lists four things that we should avoid. 
The world's things for me. This is a philosophy. The world's things for me. We should avoid that. That squeezes out the love of God. Now, uh, this has been called materialism. And if you're raised in religious environments, you might have heard that word materialism. Materialism is love of the material, right? Stuff. Now, this is talked about in God's word a lot. Materialism, things. You know, you cannot love God and things. Jesus said that. And yet it's so pervasive, the love of things, the dangling of things, it's so pervasive, right? So how do we avoid that, that pull? I want to be clear here. Every time we talk about materialism, it is perfectly fine to work hard and earn money. It's perfectly fine to earn a lot of money. It's perfectly fine to spend your money on things for your needs and even for your enjoyment. There's not a problem with that. The problem comes when we spend all of our money on ourselves. That's the problem. Or, or when what we give is just a, a non-sacrificial token little thing. Now, now listen, generosity at any level is good, but generosity is a little bit of that diagnostic tool of how much we love. If we say we love, but we're not generous, there is a disconnect there that we have to take a look at. Now, this is not you know, me looking down and condemning because this is my own journey as well. It's a journey of, of generosity and it's a tension. How much of what we've earned do we keep, and how much of what we've earned do we give away? And, it, and it's a, it, sometimes it's a discussion about practicalities. We have some bills that really should get paid. And then what do we have left over? And it's a tension not only of what we have and what we have left over, but it's a tension of why have we spent so much on what we have so that we have so little left over? This is the tension of generosity. It's the tension of generosity. And, and, and kind of the way it works also is, you know, people make a certain amount of money, and live into that lifestyle or slightly above. And, and there may be a little generosity there, but then we make some more money. We get a raise. We get a promotion, right? We get a new job. We make some more money. And, and, then, and then we think, well, that's the capacity to give, but that's not how it happens often. We make a, make a little more money, and then we spend that money right away. And, and why not, right? And I understand this, and we've even done it on, on occasion. You make a little more money and you think, well, gosh, let's reward ourselves. We've got this 17-year-old jalopy that we're driving. Why not get a car that's, ooh, four years old? And, and we've got to borrow a little bit. Yeah, and we've got to stretch. But let's reward ourselves, right? We make a little more, we reward ourselves. But it, it goes even beyond that. The, the American system is, is built on debt. Our country is built on debt. Ingenuity and debt. And so the entire system is, is set up so that banks will lend three times more than you earn on an annual basis. That's the formula. So if you make $50,000 a year, pretty well sure you have about $150,000 in debt. Mortgage, cars, credit cards, that kind of thing. That's about how it works. Now, if you're two times annual salary or less in debt, you're doing pretty well. If you're over three times of your annual salary in debt, you've got problems, right? That's just the American way. So let's say we make an extra $1,000 a year guaranteed, we'll not only fill that up with expenses, but we will borrow 3,000 more. That's just how the American system works. And everything is dangled in front of us to pursue that. But materialism truly is a love of the world, it's a love of self, and it squeezes out the love of God. Why? Because if I'm either not generous at all, or just barely squeezing out one or two percent, you know, which is statistically nothing, to help people in need or advance the cause of Christ, people aren't being helped. I mean, truly, very seriously, people are not being helped. Let me put it to you very, very practically. And I don't mean this to be heavy-handed. We don't talk about giving a lot around here. I don't mean this to be heavy-handed. 
But if, if, if people are giving one and 2%, it, 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 great, it's wonderful, truly. And it's pro- it, for some, it could be a sacrifice. But if there's sacrificial giving going on, so many more people will be helped. So many more homes will be opened to help families at risk of homelessness. So many more people will be mobilized. Community Mission of Hope will have the staff that they need to keep you know, serving 500 families a month. And there's two staff members over there, like one and a half staff members over there, uh, taking care of hundreds of volunteers and taking care of a, of a campus, a 10,000 square foot campus. And, and thousands of tons of food coming in and out and counseling for housing. It, it, and so there's, there, that scarcity will increase advancing the cause of Christ in very real ways by generosity. It just will. It's the way it works. But if we're clinging on to things for us, that gets squeezed out. Second thing, wanting my own way, wanting my own way. This is totally natural, totally normal. Other translations put it lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh, flesh is me, right? My flesh. It, it's a, 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 a lust for self, meaning I want my way. I want my way. So I love the message translation of this. I want my way. Now, wanting our way is normal and natural. Why do I want my way all the time? It's a very simple question. Why do I want my way all the time? Because I'm right all the time. I think that's, I've never had a wrong opinion. And that's my opinion, right? We love our own opinions, right? Even on the small things, we love our own opinions. But it's actually a little deeper than that. It's not just about wanting our way because we think we're right. We want our way because if we get our way, we have a sense of power. If I don't get my way, that power is lost and we freak out. And so, for example, right after this service, there's a decision about lunch. Where do we go for lunch? Well, is it going to be Mexican or Thai food? Now, if you love Mexican, you know it's an addiction. It's, 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 it's a ter- terrible addiction. If I'm three days without Mexican food, I start to shake and I need some medication. So Mexican food. Haven't had it in a little while. I'm wanting Mexican after this. Somebody, uh, well, Thai. Well, I want Thai. I want Mexican. I want it. But it's not only about whether I want Mexican, it's about if I give in and we go to Thai food, I lose power. And if I lose power, it's like, well, I'm never gonna get what I want then. And so I have to step up in every disconnect, I have to step up to get my way. That's human nature. That's where, that's where marriages really freak out. That's where parenting really freaks out. You could be talking about nothing of importance, but it's about the thing under it. It's about, boy, if I don't win in this, I'm not gonna win in anything. And if I don't win in here, it's like my third loss in a row and therefore I'm not, anyway, it's, it's a whole mess. And we're all a slave to that. Every one of us is a, is a slave to that. My own family is a slave to that. There's a little disconnect and all of a sudden, uh-oh, feelings hurt and all of a sudden, what's happening? There's a whole navigation. That's on the little things. Now the big things, my wife and I had a very big decision to make last year. Do we sell our house that we raised our kids in, 15 years in our house, built with our own bare hands, truly, every bit of it, built with our own bare hands. Every memory of our kids is in that house. Do we sell that and downsize? And we had a difference of opinion. My wife's heart was, still is, in that house, right? In that house. I'm looking at numbers and three college tuitions and I'm thinking, I'm thinking downsizing. And we worked for months and months and months. And I could say to you that it wasn't a... Um, a, a, a bump-free ride, let's put it that way. We never yelled at each other. I don't think we ever, we kind of accused each other of this and that, <laughs> a little bit here and there. Um, but it's some little borderline manipulation, coercion, harassment, back and forth, right? And then we came to, to a decision, right? 
And, and that, that decision is a tough one because we want our way. But if we want our way all the time, that, that means that we are not loving as much as we could because love reverses that. Love says, you know what? My pleasure is in you getting what you want. That's love. My pleasure is not getting what I want. My pleasure is you getting what you want. As long as it's not dangerous or harmful, I live so that you can get what you want. That's different. That's different. So, I'm sorry, what are you saying? Are we okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll talk later. This is being recorded. This is live stream. Billions will see this. Third thing. Everything for myself. Yes, I did get my way. Everything for myself. <laughs> Number three. <laughs> Move on to the next slide. Everything for myself. That's the, that's the um, this, is, this is the desire not to just get what I want, not, or get what I need, but get what I want. Everything for myself. Now, the way this is translated in other uh, versions is the, de the desire of the eyes. The desire of the eyes. Now, this is going to get a little sensitive here. The desire of the eyes. This is seeing something and not just wanting it to meet a need, but wanting it because I want it. Wanting it because it's more. Now, here we go. Food is one of these things. Food is so abundant in the West that it's not just a matter of I am starving to death. I need to survive. It's much more than that. I have a little twinge of hunger. And listen, in the West, we can't tolerate even a small twinge of hunger. We don't deal with that at all. Little twinge of hunger, I need to eat. And so we have a pantry. I'm not kidding you. Our pantry is bigger than most homes in the world. And it has everything in there, everything in there. We can't deal with a little bit of hunger. Now in the normal world and what the body's designed for is you eat, you are hungry for a period of time until you eat again. That's not the way we work. We want what we need and we want what we want and then we want more. And it's not just about the feeling of bodily hunger. There's an emotional thing in there as well. Sex the same way. Sex is the same way. Sex is designed for a man and a woman to get married. And in that marriage, you enjoy that intimate connection. And in that intimate connection, you are living for the affirmation and the satisfaction of the other. That's the way God has designed the sexual relationship. It's not the way it works now. Now it's about, I've got a, I can see anything right now. Anything right now. Right now, on your phone, on the church Network, you could probably see some pretty terrible stuff right now, right? It's right here. We have it all right here. And I'm not just talking about pornography. I'm talking about the flirting and the texting and the sexting and the DMing. And I mean, it's a whole world that is just, it's tantalizing and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's bringing this sense of thrill and a sense of kind of fake affirmation all over the place. It's dysfunctional, totally dysfunctional. That's what it, it means. Everything for ourselves, desire of the eyes. Also, um, shelter becomes luxury. It's not just about shelter and comfort. It's about living in luxury. Transportation becomes a status symbol. Clothes become our identity, right? All of these things that are alluring is the world saying, you are worth something only if you pursue more and more and more desires of the eyes. Everything for myself is the love of the world and squeezes out the love of God. Everything for myself is love of the world and squeezes out the love of God. Of God. Why does it squeeze out the love of God? Because if I just need more and more and more for myself, that means there's less and less of my attention going to others, less and less of my attention going towards love. Fourth and finally, appearing important. 
Appearing important, we've got to deny that. That's a lack of love to want to appear important. Now, to be clear, there's a basic human nature that desires to be affirmed and desires to be respected, desires to be significant. That's fine. There's not a problem at all with that. In your family, your vocation, with your friends, you know, people want to be noticed and, and feel apart. No problem with that. The problem is when that tips to the point of jealousy, envy. So I want what you have. You've got that car. I want your car. I'm desiring after your car. I'm not a car guy, but I'm a house guy. And so, you know, I build houses and that kind of stuff. And so when, I, when there's a house that is really this cool thing, and man, I, I could find my heart going towards that house in a very jealous way, right? I've got to guard that. Um, it, it could be about clothes and it could be, you name it. There's just so many things in there. It could turn to envy. Uh, people, relationships can become rivals. You know, either in your family, you're kind of vying for power or attention. It could be in your workplace. There's all kinds of adversaries. You know, other salespeople or other managers, and they're just adversaries and rivals. Um, and somebody else's success, we take as our failure, or we resent somebody else's success. It's this competition. Instead of working for the success of others, that's a concept that probably doesn't cross a lot of our minds naturally. If we're wanting to be at the top and if we're wanting to have what other people have, we squeeze out the love of God because then we're not living for the success of the others. Love turns human nature upside down. Love makes us so secure that we could be successful and influential in our workplace. We can have a voice in our home, no problem, but I'm also gonna live for the success of others. I'm gonna live for my wife's success. I'm gonna live for my, you know, the other sales manager's success. And when they get accolades and credit and a bonus for what they did, I don't see it as some injustice. I did half of their work and I deserve that bonus. And no, we're free from that. Love frees us from this tension in the world of having to have more, of having to have attention. Love frees us to be content with what we have. Love frees us to be generous. So permission to live really is permission to love. Permission to live is permission to love, and it is not an easy thing to do. I'm going to close this out with a quick story. About three years ago or so, I'm driving southbound on uh, Diaz Road. Diaz Road, uh, a little road across the river. Some of you know it. Um, it's, a, it's a narrow two-lane road, and there's only, I think, one stoplight, and so people go down that road pretty fast, about 50 miles an hour or so. And it was raining that day. I had some place to go, and I'm driving southbound on Diaz Road, and I see on the right side of the road, there's a woman um, sitting on a curb, and it's raining. This is very unusual. No way would anybody sit on the curb of a narrow two-lane road with 50-mile-an-hour traffic going back and forth, busy road. And, and it was in the rain. It was weird and cold, and why is she there? There's a man standing next to her, and so I'm getting ready to kind of approach them, and I know I've got I've to kind of swerve over a little bit. I don't want to hurt her. don't want to get close to her. And as I get a little closer, I notice the man hauls off and kicks this woman either in the shoulder or in the head, kicks her hard. And she, she's jolted and she goes down and she gets herself back up and then she just sits there and he's animated. And I, I'm thinking a hundred thoughts in my head. I mean, I'm thinking a hundred thoughts in an instant. Did I just see that right? I mean, it's raining. Did I notice that? Maybe things were blurred or something. Did I just see a man in broad daylight on the side of a busy road kick a woman in the head? Maybe I missed that. Maybe that was, that was, that was something I, I saw wrong. And then I'm thinking, I've got to pull over. This is insane. And then I think, do I really need to pull over? Um, am I, what am I going to do, fight this guy on Diaz Road? These fists have never hit another human being. I don't know how to do that. I'm a lover, not a fighter. What am I going to do? <laughs> what if he has a weapon? I mean, these things are coming through my head, right? 
But then what if I don't stop? Am I gonna leave this woman on the side of the road? Do, do, am I just witnessing violence and not gonna stop? You know, and, and if I stop, maybe this could be a turning point for her. Maybe it could be a turning point for him. All these thoughts are rushing through my head. And I tell that story not just because it's a story of a decision whether to love or not and a risk of a decision whether to love or not, but it's, it's all of our stories. It's the story of the world. Everybody in this world is either that woman, that man, or that driver. Everyone. Some of you in this, in this room are that woman. You have been abused. You have been mistreated. You've been unloved. Maybe your family has rejected you. Maybe some, some brooding force has been upon you, even abusive, even violent against you. Some of you may be like that woman. Some of you may be like that man. You are an abuser. You're here in church and things look pretty good right now, but you're a violent, maybe angry man or woman. And you go after people. You go after people with your words, after people with manipulations, after people even with violence. And I'm glad you're here because you can find God's love, God's grace, God's forgiveness, and you can turn that around because likely you're an abuser because you were once the abused. So we're glad you're here. Most of us are probably, like me, the driver, driving down the road, and there's a world, a whole world that's taking place around us, but for a lot of us, we're doing our own thing, right? This is love of the world, it's love of our world, love of self, and we're driving, we got places to go, we got things to do, I got somewhere to be, right? And so for a lot of us, we may not even see the world around us, we may not see the people that are in need. And so we just keep trucking, keep trucking, keep trucking. That's how a lot of us live our lives. The first step is to say, let's slow down just a little bit. Let's slow down our lives a little bit and let's just start noticing people. Let's, noticing, let's notice people in our home. Let's notice people in our workplace. Let's notice people on the side of a road, literally. Let's notice them. Let's get our eyes not just focused on us, but focused on others. And then what do we do about it? At some sacrifice to ourselves, do we pull over and stop and help? Or do we just keep trucking down the road, doing our own thing? And there's decisions to be made. These are very, very practical decisions that, that are made and decisions that can be made even today. Today, today, you can as a family get around and just say, you know what? We have to decide to be generous. We haven't been as generous as we know we need to be or want to be. Let's sit down and make a plan of generosity. You can do that. Let's decide that we don't have to get our way all the time. This is a decision that you make in your own heart. You know what, I kind of want my way all the time and I kind of impose and manipulate and coerce and cajole to get my way. Maybe we can say, you know what, I don't have to have my way all the time. Perhaps I can get my pleasure in you getting your way. That's why we're going to hamburgers after church today. <laughs> Maybe you can decide that you don't need to have it all. You don't need to have it all. Have what you need for sure. Have some wants for sure, no problem but you don't need to have it all, more, more, more. As you look for the vision of your life ahead, it's not bigger house, better car, more money, better retirement. Sure, have some goals, no problem. But maybe the vision of your life is, I could take what God has given me and I can help people. I can give my time, I can give some resources. It's not all about more and more for me. And then finally, we can decide that I don't have to appear important. I don't have to get all the credit. I can be content with who I am and what I have. I could live for another person's success. These are the little decisions that we make. Some of them are practical decisions about time and treasure. Some of them are heart decisions. Am I going to have the diagnosis that I am walking in Christ because I'm walking in love? Am I gonna live the kind of life that is in line with the priorities of Jesus Christ? 
Or am I gonna live sort of that typical life of living for myself? There's little decisions to be made here and we can make those decisions today as a family of faith and you can make those decisions today in your own home. Let's make a difference. Let's work together. Let's keep advancing the cause of Christ in powerful ways and that only comes through selfless sacrificial love. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for our time today to go through a tough passage of scripture. 1 John 2 is, is difficult on, on many fronts, just conceptually getting our head around what it means to, to be loved, but then what it means to love, to walk in the light. And, and these are tough things to look at. Uh, we have to each look at ourselves and ask ourselves uh, hard questions. Are there things in our life that tend to be self-centered, that tend to be self-focused, where all of what we have is used for us, where we want to get our way all the time, where we're living for our own success, wanting more, um, and God not doing the things that Jesus did, looking out for others, noticing people, particularly those who are in need. Um, we want to live more like Jesus. And that involves some difficult introspection. And, and so God, through prayer, we make some decisions today. We want to make a decision to be more generous with our time and with our treasure. We want to make a decision that we don't have to have our way all the time. We could receive our pleasure in those we love getting their way. We can decide that we don't have to have it all, just having more and more and more, but we can be content and, and we can use what we have for the benefit of others. We can decide today that we don't have to appear important and get all the credit, but we can help others uh, be successful and help others get the attention that they need and that they deserve. God, it is not all about us. It's not all about me. Jesus showed us the way by, by giving, giving the rights and privileges of the Godhead, setting those aside to meet the needs of others, to live for the benefit of others, and we get to receive that benefit as he is our forgiver and he's the one that gives us new and eternal life. He gave it all that we might live and we receive that life and we wanna walk in that life and that life is the light of Christ, that life is the light of love. Help us to love more for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.